friends, it's Dick Foth, and it is Stories from the Road on Easter Sunday, 2023. We'll be doing a little bit more theology, a little more God talk than maybe we we do on other podcasts. But for the God talk, let me start with October 1990, People's Magazine. And they were interviewing Larry King, who back in the day was a big name in in, uh, broadcasting, both on radio and television. He was the consummate interviewer. And someone asked him what his fantasy interview would be, and he said, Jesus Christ. I would ask him, Larry says, if he believed that he was born of a virgin, because whatever the answer, it changes or reinforces the world. That's kind of a cool question for me when I heard him say that, because if Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, resurrection from the dead should be no problem. For some, that's an idea or a fantasy or weirdness, but for others, it's a fact. For 2,000 years, it's been a fact for many others. Easter Monday, which is interesting, Easter Monday is a holiday in 116 nations celebrated by better than two-thirds of the people in the United States. It's, it's a part of an institutional thing. It's part of the fabric of a lot of people's lives. It's tradition. But do you celebrate Easter is a different question because it could be a spiritual question or Easter bunny question. It's a different question than do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth, who some believe to be the Messiah, was executed by the state 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem and three days later physically rose from the dead? That's, that's a very different question. And the net effect of that, many believe, like me, like I believe this, is that all people, every individual, can experience forgiveness from their sins and have a new mind and heart and life forever in the glorious presence of the creator of the universe. You say, wow, that's a a leap to think about human beings and then resurrection from the dead. It sounds ridiculous. sounds impossible. Well, some Jewish folks in Jesus' day believed in a general resurrection for all people at the end of time. But the one we're talking about here with Jesus and that impact, that's That's one of a kind. There is this fellow in the New Testament who's called the Apostle Paul. He was Saul, but he was a religious guy who believed that people who thought about the resurrection of Jesus were worthwhile killing. So he was what we would call a religious terrorist in our day. And in, in, a, in writing to uh, a church in southern Greece, and you've heard me talk about this before, in Corinth, which is a party town, he uh, puts out a case for the resurrection. This is what he says. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, this good news, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised 
on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And I'm, I'm skipping a few verses just for the sake of the reading here. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep or died in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I find that a fascinating statement. So the question is, okay, so Jesus was raised from the dead. What's in it for me? That's a pretty narcissistic thought, but most of us have self-interest along the way or somewhere. Well, this text suggests that Jesus' resurrection is a prelude to ours. He goes on, Paul goes on in verse 50 to say, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep or die, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And then this classic statement, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Now, that's a perspective. Resurrection overwhelms death. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, it sets up another moment down the road for us. That's worth celebrating. That's what I'm thinking on Easter Sunday. There's a fellow, uh, not just any old fellow, his name is N. Thomas Wright, N.T. Wright, and he's the former bishop of Durham in England. He, a lot of folks read him today, scripture scholar, he's a teacher, and he has some interesting thoughts. And I have this book that he wrote some time back called Surprised by Hope, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church. I just want to read you just a few of his thoughts about the resurrection. Listen to what he says. No first century Jew prior to Easter expected the resurrection to be anything other than a large scale event happening to all God's people, or perhaps to the entire human race as part of the sudden event in which God's kingdom would finally come on earth as in heaven. There's no suggestion that one person would rise from the dead in advance of that event. Okay. Then this thought. Notoriously, the accounts of Easter, he's talking about the New Testament now, do not fit snugly together. How many women went to the tomb? How many angels or men did they meet there? Did the disciples meet Jesus in Jerusalem or Galilee or both? And so on. And if, if you who are listening, if any of you have read the Jesus story through the Gospels, you see this is true. But surface discrepancies, he says, do not mean that nothing happened. Indeed, they're reasonable indication that something remarkable happened, so remarkable that the first witnesses were bewildered into telling different stories about it. If you're in the legal system, if you're in the police force, you know that eyewitness accounts of the same event vary greatly depending on where you were standing, what you heard, how much attention you were paying. One of the strange features of the stories is more often remarked upon, and that is the presence of the women as the principal witnesses. In all four gospel stories, front and center, the, the first witnesses, the first apostles, set ones, if you would, were females. Female first stories we find in the gospels. 
I just think that's not only fascinating for that day and age when women were not paid so much attention to, if you will, it's front and center in the good news story. And final thoughts from N.T. Wright are the challenge is in fact the challenge of new creation. To put it at its most basic, the resurrection of Jesus offers itself to the student of history or science no less than the believer or the theologian, not as an odd event within the world as it is, but as the utterly characteristic foundational event within the world as it has begun to be. The claim advanced is of this magnitude. Jesus of Nazareth ushers in not simply a new religious possibility, not simply a new ethic or a new way of salvation, but a new creation. A new creation. The power and glory of the Most High God, setting us free to know and to be with Him forever. So over the centuries, millions have come to know that freedom and that hope. I have no clue, by the way, who I speak to at this moment, but have you ever considered the possibility of being like a new creation? Well, let me give you a snapshot of two people who did. One was named George. George Handel was a German fellow living in London in the 1740s. He was depressed. He was broke. He was a musician. He was cut off from his friends. But this moment in his life in those days happened that in a few days he wrote an oratorio, which back in the day was a musical presentation that told a story not unlike Fiddler on the Roof that Ruth and I got to see in Denver a few days ago. But it's that kind of presentation. And one part of that oratorio that he wrote in 1742 grabbed folks, and people today still pick up on it. It's called the Hallelujah Chorus. It's first performed in Dublin on the east coast of Ireland on the Irish Sea at the new music hall in Fishamble Street at noon on April 13, 1742. Six years later, 1748, on the west coast of Ireland, out in the Atlantic, it's a huge storm. It was March the 10th, 1748, and a ship was foundering. It was about to sink, and a 23-year-old sailor schooled in faith at his mother's knee years before, up to the age of seven. He thought his life was over. His name was John. John Newton was his name. 10th of March, says Newton, is a day much to be remembered by me, for on that day the Lord came from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. And he records this. As Newton hurried to his place at the pumps trying to save the ship, he said to the captain, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy upon us. His own words startled him. This was the first desire, he said, I had breathed for mercy for many years. That moment would become a lifelong journey that would bless the world. So the words to the Hallelujah Chorus were sung in April of 1742. 30 years later, in 1772, John Newton penned these words to Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. He was a slaver. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. 
And now tilting toward Resurrection Day, the last two verses. Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And to those sentiments, I say, hallelujah, which means praise God. By the way, it's a Hebrew word. It's become universal across language and cultures and nations. It's a blessing word. I've never heard anyone cuss by saying hallelujah. Hallelujah is the absolutely right and delightful response to the resurrection of Jesus. I have two favorite Englishmen. I have several, but these are two of them. J.B. Phillips, who was a pastor in London back after World War II, and N.T. Wright from Durham. J.B. Phillips, in paraphrasing scripture, says that hallelujah means three cheers for Jesus. And N.T. Wright, in writing about Easter week, says, Easter ought to be an eight-day festival with champagne served after morning prayer or even before with lots of hallelujahs, extra hymns, and spectacular anthems. That's it, this Resurrection Sunday. If you want to respond to any of the thoughts just shared, just add a comment on social media or send us a message on our website, and we'll include the link in our show notes. This is Dick Foth, signing out on this Easter Sunday morning and declaring, He is risen. Oh, and imagine yourself, if you will, in Fishamble Street Music Hall in Dublin, on April 1742, for the first time in history, you're hearing this. Oh,